0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Tonight, uh, I'm, we're going to be back in Psalms, but uh, it'll be toward the end of the message that we actually read it. I want to give you a little bit background on this. In 2 Samuel which you may remember is essentially the biography of King David from the death of King Saul forward. We uh, read about him establishing the kingdom. You know, he was anointed uh, in Hebron, and then he was, you know, little by little, uh, came into the kingdom. And then after the death of Saul, he comes to Jerusalem. He establishes the kingdom. He puts the enemies uh, little by little uh, down. You know, this is back in the days of the United Kingdom when you didn't have to wonder where it says Israel. Is it talking about Judah or is it talking about Israel? There was only one Israel. They were all together, all, all 12 tribes. He brings the ark to Jerusalem. He subdues his enemies, and he settles into just being a good, godly king. But as we know, one who also sins. The sin he's most famous for, of course, is uh, his affair with Bathsheba and what he did to cover it up, which was to kill her husband. And we know how that went down. And uh, it is tr- it is a troubling thing to read, and this is, again, this is... The man that God himself identifies as a man after his own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, And this was a big deal. Uh, Nathan the prophet confronted him about it. He repents. Uh, The child uh, that was born of this unholy union died. Uh, But then he marries Bathsheba. Uh, We're very familiar with that. But if you're like me, uh, you're probably also at least a little bit troubled by the fact that Bathsheba wasn't his only wife. There was uh, Michael, or Michal, Saul's daughter. There was Abigail. Remember her? She was the widow of Nabal back when he was uh, out there with his band of guerrillas in the countryside. And these are the most famous. You know, Saul's daughter, uh, Michael, Bathsheba, and Abigail are the three that you're probably most familiar with. But there were three or four others, including a woman named Ahinoam of Jezreel. And Ahinoam was actually the mother of David's firstborn child, Amnon. And Amnon, as firstborn, was the presumed heir. He he should have become king upon David's death. Uh, Unfortunately, what Amnon is most famous for is the rape of his half-sister, Tamar. You guys remember that story, right? It's a pretty gross thing to read about. But he was, you know, you had David's sons, all these different children by different mothers, and they all had their own house. They all had their own place in the kingdom and their own servants, et cetera, uh, living the royal life. Uh, but they're half brothers and sisters. And um, Am- Am- Amnon was uh, hot for Tamar, and he, even to the point that he was love sick. And his uh, friend, who is also his cousin, devises this plan to lure her into the room to care for him in his sickness. He gets her alone. He rapes her, and then uh, she leaves in shame. He kicks her out, says then suddenly he hated her with a hate that was greater than the love with which he loved her. And she's distraught, and she uh, goes for comfort to her brother Absalom, her full brother. Absalom is the son of Abigail. And Absalom consoles her. He says, Don't worry about it. Don't say anything. We'll deal with this on our own. Did David know about it? Yes, he did. What was David's reaction? The only thing it says was that David was very angry about these things. We don't see that he did anything by way of discipline, uh, that he did anything. He was just mad and probably embarrassed. And uh, Absalom, who was a very popular young man, he's about 20 at this point, and Amnon was 22. Absalom was a beautiful young man. I remember the description of him. He had hair that he would cut once a year, and it was about three pounds worth of hair, and uh, just was considered this very virile, manly man. And uh, he consoles Tamar, bides his time, and about two years after the rape incident, He's out having, uh, it was the time for sheep shearing. And they would actually turn this into a festival. And so during the sheep shearing festival, he invites his father, King David, to come, knowing that David probably would not take, out, uh, take time out of his busy kinging schedule to come and do that. But he says, well, if you can't come, well, please, invite, let me invite the other sons of the king. He says, yeah, by all means. So he invites them all, uh, including Amnon out there. And when he gives the signal, all of his men attack Amnon and kill him. And this was his act of vengeance for his sister. Uh, And word comes to David, oh no, there's been this terrible fight at the sheep shearing festival and all of your sons are dead. And he's, oh no, I can't believe it. And somebody says, don't be troubled. That's a rumor. It's not true. Amnon is the only one who's dead. But he was the heir. Absalom knew what he was doing. So after he does what he planned to do, uh, he splits, he takes off. He flees with his men and stays away for uh, two or three years. And keep in mind, he's very, very popular. And so David misses him. And it's a very interesting story because David loves Absalom. He's probably his favorite son. And he's heartbroken over the murder of his other son, Amnon, and knows that if he encounters Absalom, he really has to execute his son. He's missing him. He hates that he's gone, but he hates the fact that if he ever sees him again, he's honor-bound to kill him for killing the heir of the king. The public knows about this. It's really no secret. They know what happened with Tamar, uh, and they love Absalom anyway, Uh, and and so they're like, you know, look, they kind of get it. They know why Absalom did what he did, and they all want him back, and David wants him back, but David doesn't want to kill him. The public doesn't want David to kill him, so Joab Uh, who is David's top general, and a guy that I really like in Scripture. He was a great guy up until he took a hard left turn at the very end, but he was a good, loyal servant of David's. And he orchestrates this encounter with this woman. He hires this woman, hey, go and tell David this story that basically is an analogy of what's going on with uh, Absalom. It's kind of like when Nathan comes to David and said, you know, there was this uh, family down the road and they had this beautiful pet sheep and this guy came and he took it and slaughtered it to feed his family, even though he had a whole flock of sheep. And David's like, oh, this man's going to die and he's going to repay fourfold. And Nathan says, that man is you. So this woman comes in and gives this big sob story about how uh, her sons are whatever fighting, and one's going to kill the other. He says, let, he says if anybody tries to do it, he's under the king's protection. And then she says, well, then why don't you let Absalom come back? And he says, and D- David sees right through her. He says, has Joab been talking to you? And she said, I'm sorry, yeah, it was Joab. So Joab comes in and says, yeah, it was me. Look, everybody loves your son. Nobody wants him dead. Nobody's going to hold your feet to the fire on this. Every, look, Amnon had it coming anyway. Let, let's have Absalom come back. So they invite Absalom back to Jerusalem. He comes back. He's living there. And, and because David is so ashamed, I think he feels like he's failed in terms of justice here, that he doesn't see Absalom, doesn't invite him. They don't have a face to face meeting for two more years. And so finally, uh, Absalom says, Look, I'm just going to leave again. If I, can't, if I can't see my father, if I can't see the king, what's the point of being back? There's been no reconciliation. So they reconcile, there's full reconciliation. Uh, They kiss, and now Absalom finally, again, has full access to all the royal stuff. He is back in business as a king's kid. And uh, he gets his retinue. He gets 50 or so guys to hang out with him. He gets chariots. He gets horses and starts living like a king. But he's hanging out. Instead of at the palace, he's hanging out at the gates of the city where he will uh, uh, just chat with the people. He'll meet them. And people come to the gates for judgment. They're representatives for the king, and they seek an audience with the king, which they occasionally get. But he'd say, while we're waiting, tell me what your deal is. And then he'd listen with great sympathy. This beautiful man, the king's son. And he'd shake his head and say, oh, man, yeah, man, you know what? My dad, probably not going to do anything about it. Now, if I was king, boy, you'd be living a different world tomorrow. I would see that you got justice. But I really can't do anything about it. I just wanted to let you know I'm on your side. If I could do anything, I would. And so the people start think, thinking what? I kind of wish Absalom was king. And the Bible says this, Thus he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Little by little, he got most of the people in Jerusalem on his side. And when he has figures he has plenty of people to do what he really wants to do, he goes to his father David. And he says, I forgot to tell you, while I was living out of town those three years, I made a vow to the Lord, and I need to go back to Hebron to pay this vow. Do I have your permission? And David says, yeah, by all means. I'm proud of you, son. Go in peace. As he leaves, and he's got his men with him, several of them, and he's gotten word out to all the other people in the city, as soon as you hear the trumpet, you'll know that I've set up my kingdom in Hebron, And we'll come back and we'll take over Jerusalem together. So he openly rebels against his father. Rallies the ones who are loyal to him. Meanwhile, David, as soon as he gets word of what's happened, he gets his troops and those who are loyal to him. And they flee. They run away before Jerusalem can be besieged. And they prepare for a protracted battle out there in the countryside. Which David's good at. David is a skilled man of war. But he's depressed. This is a very, very low point in his life because he's going to battle against his son, whom he loves. He's been temporarily ousted from his kingdom, and the people that ousted him are, number one, his own flesh and blood, and number two, the very people that he delivered into safety, delivered into prosperity as their uh, battle leader and as their king, he has been a good king to them. And uh, he's secured all this stuff for them, and they have turned on him because they've been wooed away by the charm of Absalom. And uh, it is also during this episode, by the way, that a man named uh, Ahithophel, who was one of David's advisors, turns on David and becomes a loyal, trusted advisor to Absalom. And uh, this is, there's, a, there's a point here where it says, how am I going to let people know that I am, this is Absalom wondering, what can I do to really let people know I have taken over? And Ahithophel says, here's what you do. Because uh, David had left some women, some concubines, back in the palace to take care of the household while he was gone. And he says, you take your father's concubines and you set up a place on the roof of the palace and you have sex with your father's concubines in a very public way. That's the most obvious way. You can thumb your nose at your father and let him know you've taken charge. What an oddly specific piece of advice, right? But you know who Ahithophel was, right? Remember? Bathsheba's grandfather. He could remember the shame he felt when he realized what what David had done with his granddaughter. And this was his chance to finally get back at David. His sin is catching up with him. Now, you remember how this turns out, okay? While they're out there uh, engaging in these uh, uh, battles out in the wilderness, Absalom is riding his mule and he gets his head or perhaps his hair stuck in the branches of a terebinth tree Uh, as he's riding his hair his head gets stuck and the mule it says the mule that was under him kept on going (laughs) so he's hanging in this tree alive he's stuck and this uh uh one of the soldiers comes up to joab and says just saw absalom hanging in a tree and joab says did you kill him no, I didn't kill him. He says, oh, man, I'd have given you $1,000 if you killed him. He says, I "Man, I wouldn't kill him for a million dollars. That's the king's son. Joab says, I haven't got time to waste talking to you, takes three spears, stabs Absalom to death, and buries him. And then the people go home. David returns to being king. The people submit to him again very quickly. Yep, David, you're a king. You're right. Sorry. Sorry about that. We should have never turned on you. And David is moaning and crying, Absalom, my son, Absalom, oh, that I had died instead of you. And Joab comes and rebukes him. King David, this is an insult to all the people who were loyal to you. What you're basically saying is, you'd rather we were dead than Absalom, and he's the one that rebelled, not us. So he washes his face. He celebrates. He thanks the people. Things are kind of turning around. So he snaps out of it. But here's what I want you to remember. Back when he was on the run from Absalom, Perhaps, maybe apart from the, uh, the maybe the lowest point in his life was when he had been confronted by Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba. I tend to think, though, this overall the overall emotional impact put him in a greater state of depression when Absalom ousted him from the kingdom. He's out there. He's on the run. He can't believe this is happening. It happened so fast, and. Do you remember, thinking back again to when he uh, was confronted by Nathan the prophet, you remember, that's when he wrote Psalm 51, this great psalm of repentance. You can read it. I'm going to read it tonight. Uh, but it's this monumental psalm, and it's really poignant, knowing that this, is, uh, this was written right after he'd been, had this confrontation with the prophet. Uh, well, he wrote a psalm also when he was on the run from Absalom. And it's a pretty famous one, and we're going to read it here in a minute. I just wanted you to have this little bit of background. David is in trouble. Trouble's coming from his flesh and blood, from his own subjects, but in a roundabout way, David is responsible for it. Absalom is making choices, okay? Nothing absolves Absalom of his guilt. He's wrong. But a lot of his uh, animosity toward his father is due to how poorly he managed the whole deal with Tamar years earlier. David loved the Lord. He was a mighty man of God. He was Israel's greatest king, but he was not a model husband and father. My question going back to the beginning of this message is, did God bless David's polygamy? He did not. Clear back in Deuteronomy, God, looking forward to the day when Israel would set a king over herself, warned them. He says, now when, they, when, when, when my people set up a king, they decide they want a king like the other nations. Here's what the kings have to remember. You shall not multiply horses to yourselves or cause the people go back to Egypt for horses. They shall not multiply wives or silver and gold to themselves, lest they turn their hearts from the Lord your God. This is clear back in Deuteronomy. The whole Old Testament is a long story of God using flawed, deeply flawed and sinful people and remaining faithful to them. David did not have God's blessings on multiple marriages, but God continued to use David in the middle of that. What we have to see, especially with regard to what we're looking at tonight, is that all of his sin and trouble could be traced back to the fact that he did have multiple marriages and children by all of these marriages except for Michael, the daughter of Saul. All of this infighting and all of this jealousy and animosity was due to the fact that they didn't get along with each other. There was, there was always the threat of why should he be king? Why should, I'm really the firstborn of this wife, and he loves this wife more, so technically I'm the firstborn. They had all, this, all these things to fight about. Plus the fact that they lived in a culture, thank God, it, was, it, was, it, well, it certainly wasn't supposed to be their way, but in the cultures around them, it was, it was standard procedure. If, you, if uh, you became king, you killed the rest of the possible threats to the throne. Somebody who thinks that they should be king? Well, you just killed them before they get any ideas. Uh, And this probably affected their mindset as well. But if David had only had one wife, these troubles would not have caught up with him. What I'm saying is, to a very great extent, David, at this lowest point of his life, was in a mess of his own making. It's important because the psalm we're going to read is a great psalm. And it's a psalm that speaks of battle, that speaks of enemies. And we picture, I picture, even if you just skim the heading, you picture, well, this is David doing what David does. He's out there, he's a fighting king, and he's not going to let the enemies slow him down. But keep in mind who these enemies were and why he was facing them as we read Psalm 3. It's not a long psalm, and you will recognize it because we used to sing practically the whole thing. Begin in verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, There is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are, to, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. If David can have that kind of confidence in God's promise, in God's faithfulness, in God's covenant, oh my goodness, Let me look back at a couple particulars in this. How they have increased who troubled me. Well, he knew he had enemies. He was just better than they were. God had blessed him uh, as a great strategist, as a great general. He had great generals under him, and he had subdued his enemies. But suddenly, how his enemies had increased, how those who troubled him, now... It's not just the trouble without, it's all the trouble in the world because his own family, his own subjects have turned against him. That's what he's talking about, how they have increased who troubled me. All these thousands of people who were with me now are against me. And they've got a lot of power and they've got a good leader. Many are those who rise up, are they who rise up against me. And then look at this, many are they who say of him, there is no help for him in God. This is what I think people think about themselves and about others. Why would they say that? Are they saying God, his trouble so big that even God can't help him? I don't think that's what they're saying. I think what they're saying is he doesn't have a right to look to God for help in this situation because he brought it on himself. The people who loved Absalom were certainly going to be inclined to think that way, at least for a little while, about David. If David hadn't have done that, if he'd have just dealt with uh, Amnon for what he did to Tamar, this is all his fault. Don't appeal to my sympathy, therefore he certainly can't appeal to God's sympathy. And I think we think this quickly about other people. You know, we have a tendency, I've talked about this several times, when somebody is dealing with a struggle we want to find some way to blame them for it because it sort of protects us from thinking that it can happen to us. Why is that person sick? Well, they didn't take care of themselves. Why is this person struggling financially? Well, because they, just, they, they, weren't, they weren't smart with their money. And these things might be true. And, of course, we are absolutely uh, instructed and called to be good stewards of our health, good stewards of our bodies, good stewards of our possessions. But God is a God of second chances and third chances and hundredth chances. If you you woke up breathing today, guess what? God's mercies were new for you this morning. David's hope as he wrote this psalm, because this is not a psalm saying, Oh, God, I'm lost. This is terrible. I don't deserve this. Oh, I'm just throwing up, I'm just praying you throw me a bone, you know. I know I got this coming because of what I did. This is a bold prayer. I'm acknowledging that my enemies have increased, but you, Lord, you're a shield for me. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out to the Lord my voice, and he heard me. And they broke my enemy's teeth. We can't fall into the trap. This is the thing that David was so good at. David was a good king. He was a great man. He had so much going for him. He loved God like probably nobody else did in his age. That's why we, we know so much about God just from David's prayer life and his praise life and the things that he wrote down. He really was a man after God's own heart. But David knew he wasn't perfect. And he knew better than anybody else that the things he enjoyed were not due to his innate goodness, but to God's innate goodness. I am blessed as this king, and I am blessed with everything I'm blessed with because God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, not because I am a perfect man or a good man or a perfect king or a good king. Did David desire to strive to be a good man and a good king? He absolutely did. But he was more aware than anybody that that wasn't the source of his blessing. The source of his blessing was not his goodness, but God's goodness. Therefore, he could be bold because that's what he's appealing to. He's not making his appeal to God based on what he thought he deserved. He always knew he didn't deserve it. He's making his appeal based on God's goodness. So, man, when we are in a mess, if we're in a hole that we dug If we are in a mess of our own making, our best approach against all logic and what the world might call common sense, our best approach is a bold approach, claiming God's goodness for us. Because you see, our great, big, good, faithful God, remember, David was in this old covenant, and he had this confidence. Our confidence should be greater because, our, uh, because God's, this new covenant is not between God and Abraham. It's not between God and Moses. And guess what? It's not between God and us. This new covenant is between who? God the Father and God the Son. Our confidence is that we are in Christ. We of all people should know what we're made of. Should we strive to do better? Should we strive to be good stewards of our health and our wealth? Absolutely. Is this how the covenant works? The covenant works because God took all of our failures and put them on Jesus and crucified those things. Those things are dead. Even when they rear their head in our our lives, we we remind them they're dead. They're under our feet. And when we go to God, it's not, I blew it again, and I'm a terrible person, and I'll probably never get this right, but would you please throw me a bonus? Lord, you made a promise, and that promise is based on the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. And thank you for the blood. Thank you for the covenant. Thank you, Father, that I stand here not on my own goodness, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I stand here before you righteous because you've called me righteous, and therefore I'm entitled to all these good promises. Lord, I need a healing, and I believe it's mine. Thank you for healing me. You are the glory and the lifter of my head. You're the healer of my diseases. You're the provider of all my needs. You're my protector, my sustainer. You're my strength. Because I'm in Christ. And you deny Christ nothing. Praise and worship team, you can come on up here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's not a great promise, is it? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Probably heard me say this before. (laughs) And in David is exhibit A. Many times... Our afflictions are because of our stupid decisions. We are afflicted due to our sin. Not always. Absolutely not. We have an enemy who's going to attack us regardless. But we do open ourselves up to things, and we find ourselves afflicted because of our inattention to detail, our laziness, our flesh, our lusts. And we find ourselves afflicted many times, and the Lord delivers us out of them all. Thank God it says all and not all as long as it's not your fault. That is a truth, friends and neighbors, that will change your life if you came in here with any other concept. But I'm gonna, God showed me how to live, and if I just live this way, I'll be blessed. There's a measure of, you, you get that. I mean, he told us there's certainly reward in righteousness. But God's blessings aren't contingent upon that. God's promises aren't contingent upon that. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law, and we're in Christ. We find ourselves able to appropriate those things by recognizing that we are in Christ. Sometimes it's harder for people who live right to get that. People who are, you know, you've heard me say this before, and this is a Brad Dawson quote, some people are better by nature than others are by grace. A good man, by most people's standards, will really struggle with affliction of any kind. Why is this happening to me of all people? You of all people? You know, really, compared to God, are you that much better than me or anybody else? Of course you're not. You're made of the same dust I'm made of. Sometimes we look at, a, at somebody who comes from a much rougher background and think, wow, that guy's done a lot of stuff that really needs to be made up for. How, how can God prosper him so much, so quickly? Because he knows he's dust. There's no pretense there. He's going, for, he's going before God with the only hope he has, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Guess what, Jack? That is your only hope, too. And that's not a bad place to be. It's a great place to be once you realize that. Stand up with me. Does everybody know that? Do you know that you are in Christ? If you know that you're in Christ, you can go to God in your times of trouble, no matter how deep they are, no matter how bad they are, no matter who's responsible for them. You can go, you can lift your voice to God, and you can expect and speak the victory that David was speaking in this song. It's a great thing. All that in heaven, too. And as usual, on a Wednesday night, I'm looking around at a room full of who I'm pretty convinced are already believers. But if you're not, if you doubt that, if you doubt your security, doubt your authority to believe those things, don't waste any time when we start singing. Come up here and let me pray with you. Everybody else, if there's something you've been struggling with, "Ah, my life is terrible. I'm at a bad place in my life. And I can't seem to muster up the courage to do what the Bible says and come boldly before the throne of God and find grace for help in time of need. I'll come, but I've got to crawl. I've got to drag in some shame with me. Can't do it. God doesn't respond to shame. He responds to faith. And faith is in the finished work of Christ. It's really an insult if you look at it any other way. You're saying that the shed blood of Jesus Christ isn't enough. I've got to drag in my, my load of shame and false humility in here to make up the gap In what Jesus failed to accomplish at the cross. No, you come boldly because Jesus finished work on the cross was more than enough. So, is there something going on in your life? You need a breakthrough, you need something to bridge the gap. What is going to help me believe that God is for me? This is it. Maybe you need just during this song. Maybe you need to come and just lay that thing joyfully at the altar. You don't have to. This isn't a magical place, but I would encourage you to make a concrete moment. Lord, I'm not going to be dragged down by this. Did you? I really should have pointed this out. Uh, I meant to. Just went into my notes. I figured it'd be so obvious when I read it again. I'd remember. I lay me down and I slept. He just went to sleep. Many of you have been there. Maybe you have told stories to me. We've come up for prayer for this thing. Your lack of sleep, and it's nothing medical. It's nothing, uh, you're you're not on too much caffeine or anything. You worry. You lay down to sleep, and and your worries and your fears keep you awake. David being run out of his town, run out of his city, run out of his kingdom, surrounded by this, this sudden increase in enemies. And what's he do? I lay me down, and I slept. And I awoke. For the Lord sustain me. This is the flip side of insomnia, worry-based insomnia that a lot of people don't like to talk about. When you finally get to sleep, when it's time to wake up, it's not just the lack of sleep, it's your lack of desire to face the next day that keeps you in bed. Do you know what I'm talking about? I can't get up. I can't do this. David says, I woke, for the Lord sustained me. He woke up, he got up, marched on to victory. We can do that too. Maybe you just need to decide, you know what, I'm going to sleep tonight. I'm going to sleep. People talk about sleep in the sleep of the just. Sleep the sleep of the justified. You've been justified in Christ. Make your decision. You're not going to be dragged down by that. Stop worrying. Stop fretting about whose fault it is and know that God is for you. Today was a new day. Tomorrow is a new day. God's mercies are new every morning. Feel free to come up here and pray. If you'd like for me to pray with you, I'd be glad to do that. If you need to be saved, if you need to be filled with the Spirit, and if you're not filled with the Spirit since you've been saved, you need that. That's where that's where the power comes from for living in ministry. And that's another sermon sometime, but there's the short version. Let me go ahead and pray. When I'm done praying, they'll start singing. You do what you've got to do. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this precious psalm from David. and. Uh, uh, testimony that we have of your faithfulness to him and what that means when it comes to your faithfulness to us we are the inheritors of a new and better covenant built on better promises thank you lord for placing us in christ for crucifying our old man and all, all of his sinful deeds <coughs> excuse me help us to walk in a manner that demonstrates that we know we've been freed, we know we've been forgiven, we know that we've been justified through the finished work and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to walk boldly. Help us to pray boldly. Help us to receive your mercy, your grace, your goodness, your provision, your healing and your protection boldly, expectantly, not because of who we are but because of who Jesus is. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody who needs to come to know you as Father tonight that you will convict him of that need. Grant them everything they need to come down and receive that free gift of eternal life. Likewise, Lord, I just pray that you speak to every one of us about something that's holding us back, some manifestation of fear that perhaps we haven't even recognized. And reveal yourself as the ultimate redeemer, covenant keeper, promise keeper, the one who has already paid the price for all those things and offers us victory unconditionally. Thank you, Lord for Jesus, who always leads us in his triumph. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.